Welcome to episode 168 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Hey, welcome back to another episode. Um, this week, my As Seen on Instagram, Instagram is actually from another SLP podcast, um, SLP Happy Hour, and her account that's online. Uh, she shares lots of great things about like kind of SLP mental health and work-life balance. And um, she had a recent post that was a passion job versus good enough jobs. And I think that we always feel like and think that we need to have our job be our passion. And uh-huh. But she talked about some of the things that happened to her. When she realized that her job was her passion and it was things like I was overworked, I took Mm -hmm. on extra responsibilities, um, which made me overwhelmed. I spent all my free time taking copious amounts of continuing ed uh, and my identity was wrapped up in the kind of work I did and how well I did it. And I think that all of those things at like the beginning sound like great things and then we get burnt out. So, and I do feel like the, the thing that I think about with this too, is we're always told also to be practicing at the top of our license. And I don't think that that's the same thing as like, I, my life revolves around my identity as a speech language pathologist too. And I think that you can be very knowledgeable in what you're doing, but not have it be your entire life. So this is what she talks about with a good Mm -hmm. enough job. Um, She said, with a good enough job, I searched for a job that didn't negatively impact my physical or mental health. Um, I did aspects of my job I was paid to do and not more. I job crafted by determining my essential job functions and doing those and not doing the rest. And then Mm -hmm. I spent my free time developing hobbies and spending time with loved ones. And I just really liked that, some of the ideas she brought up. And I also wanted to mention that I feel Mm -hmm. like telepractice gave me that in my own life, (laughs) that it was the things where I could say, you know, finally had the opportunity to say like, yes, I will do that. Yes, I will. These are the hours that I want to work. This is the things that I want to do in the field. And, you know, there's always still things that like, I never thought I'd work with high school students and here I am working with high school Mm -hmm. students. So there's still those assignments and things that come up that maybe you weren't planning on doing, but it gave me much more freedom to work being a speech language pathologist into my life rather than it being my whole life. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think because, you know, what she's doing and of course, through COVID, there's certainly a lot more um, information and a lot more uh, in terms of people focusing on that work-life balance now than they used to be. And I yeah. think that's very healthy in, in yeah. lots of ways. And I, I do think that I think what I have seen over the years, and it's, you know, everyone's different and, you know, there's individual differences, but certainly I think. I think men really do tie up their their whole self-concept, self-identity into their job. And right. if they are out of work, then it's like they're they're worthless, you know, it's like I've failed. Right. Um, and it obviously happens with women as well, but I, I've always seen women be able to have more of a not not a barrier, but being able to put that in a better context than what I see men doing often. And I think that's, I think men need to 
listen to what you're saying and listen to what she's saying and and think about it's not it's not you your job is not you it's yeah. something you yeah. do and you can be excited about it but right it's not you and so it's yeah. it's it's i think men are programmed and socialized to be the breadwinner in some cases and yeah they have to do all this stuff and when things go wrong you know it's it's a major that, that's major that, issue yeah and i think that we are talking about like men's mental health more and we're seeing more mm -hmm. like middle-aged men suicides and things like that that are really scary mm -hmm. and i and i think that that a lot ties into that some of that you're pegged into a role and if if anyone wants to discuss this further i would say go watch the barbie movie <laughs> if you haven't <laughs> So your review of the Barbie movie. My review so of the Barbie movie. It's it's so fantastic. So, but I think I it talks about feminism. It talks about mm -hmm. patriarchy. It talks about how too much of either hurts everyone. And and when you were talking about Ken was Ken was tied into the role that I am Ken. Who am I without Barbie? Because it's That's Ken right, yeah. and Barbie. Mm -hmm. So I think it talks about what you were talking about. So I don't know. There was another um, SLP who recently said like this had a post about like this is what you need to know about me to know if like I'm someone that you want to follow on social media and she said I love the Barbie movie and I kind of feel like that is my, <laughs> my measure now All I, that tells me a lot about you if I know how you felt about the Barbie movie <laughs> so yeah well, I, I didn't I mean to plug the Barbie movie but I did enjoy it well I, I have not seen it yet I do plan on seeing it but I have not right. seen it yet. But uh, it it uh, it seems to have really struck a chord with a lot of people I and, and so. with a lot of women in a very positive yeah. way. And like you're saying, it's, it's yep. touching on all these different topics that maybe isn't touched on in a lot of movies, you know, and it's a yeah. perfect yeah. vehicle for that. Yep. So um, on the podcast today, we have Dawn Cotter Jenkins, who's coming back to talk to us about what she's doing now and telepractice and some little bit of ethics and, and diversity and equality and inclusion uh, in telepractice and some other areas. So I'm excited to, to chat with her. So Don, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for rejoining us. If you don't mind, give everyone an update uh, about who you are and where you are now and what you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me again. I really enjoy talking to you guys. Um, I also got to meet you at ASHA in yes. real life. So that was yeah. very exciting for me. Um, I am in New York. Since the last time I was here, I've actually gone back to academia. <laughs> and I am the clinical director at uh, College Mercy College in New York. The what I've done over the years, I, I always like to say, and I will say it again, over the years, I have worked in probably every area almost of speech language pathology. Um, and my personal preferences have been before school and after school. So I've worked with early intervention and I've worked with adults, both with developmental disabilities and without uh, and in elective services, so without any disorders at all. So in some ways, it's almost the full spectrum of from you know cradle to at least adulthood. Um, I wouldn't say grave yet. Um, and so that has been a great 
personal journey for me so that when I'm clinical director and I see clients that are coming in for my student clinicians and I'm talking to them about what they can expect, I have at least a little bit of perspective from the babies to the school age to the adults. So yes, that's what I've been doing. And if you stay in the profession long enough, you'll work with most populations or at least most age ranges, right? Yes, I will probably add a couple more. I'm sure there's a couple that I'm missing. <laughs> I always say I haven't done high school yet. So I've done elementary and middle school. So I haven't done high school. Never know. Maybe I'll do that next. You're not missing much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kim's uh, currently dealing with some I, high school yep, students. Yep. Or I just thrown, this past I got school thrown year. into that. Yeah, I got thrown into that a couple of school years ago and never thought I would do that. And they're okay. I'm liking them better than I thought I would. <laughs> Some of them might listen to you today. So I know, mm-hmm. I know. True, true. So Don, you're you're now in academia, so that is wonderful. So t- tell us a little bit about Mercy College and your your program there. Yes. So this is the fifth university that I've worked at, but the but definitely not in this position. So this is definitely a, a new a new version for me. So Mercy College is a private university in Westchester, New York, um, and it has its um, it has an on-site clinic as well as, um, of course, we continue to do telepractice. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm very pleased about that. I did not yeah. have to start from scratch, so that is great. I am enjoying it. There, it's a small faculty, but they're, they have been very welcoming to me. So I, I'm definitely. I hope that I'm more than in the honeymoon period, but I'm feeling honeymoonish. <laughs> very good, very good. And so, were they doing some telepractice on faculty? Were they doing that before? Obviously, they're probably doing it during COVID and all that, right. like, like the rest of us. But have they been keeping that up? Yes, thankfully they have been. They have been um, actively continuing to do so. What What is, of course, interesting and a uh, leftover um, way of working through after COVID has been that if a client is an in-person client, every once in a while, they use telepractice with them because the client is sick for the day and they don't come in or they need to cancel, but they don't really want to cancel for various reasons. So in some ways, um, even more so, they're doing telepractice even beyond the clients that are particularly scheduled for telepractice only. So we have, I would say, if I were looking at the percentages and the numbers, about a quarter of our clients that are online and do telepractice services, and then the other 75% come in person to participate in the sessions. That's probably what I'm seeing right now, too, and just in terms of people wanting to come back in and uh, kind of reestablish that in-person, you know, service delivery. But then, like you're saying, you know, every now and again, they'll just say, oh, I'm not feeling well. Can we just jump online or, you know, they'll call in and, and convert it to a telepractice session and for different reasons. So starting yeah. to see that happen more often, too. Yeah. And of course, yeah. there's pros and cons to that with academia in the mm-hmm. sense that the student clinicians are then the ones that are, you know, the front, the front line of that service. Um, especially in the beginning of the semester, 
our students uh, get a little freaked out if a client changes from oh, in yeah. person to yep. online. <laughs> I can imagine that. But I like that that is what, you know, I feel like that because kind of like the reality and what where telepractice is useful yep. is not just not only in the instances where you can't get in or the family can't get in consistently, but for those ones that it's just like it doesn't work for us today. So I, I like mm-hmm. that, that you're training them to have that flexibility to go back and forth, although I'm sure it's very scary the first time <laughs> it happens for them. Yes. And being if it's early in the semester, they certainly haven't heard me talk about telepractice very much at that right. point. It's the basics, right? How do you write right. a lesson plan? You You remember these things. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. How do you how do you, you know, set up the room, you know, things like that. Yeah. So if it if it hurt, happens within the first three weeks, they're definitely like, ah, what are you talking about? What what should I do? So yeah, but I think that there's way more resources than there used to be. So mm-hmm. thank thankfully um, sure, yeah. you know, that's a good thing. That's great. Well, I'm I'm glad uh another friend and colleague is taking telepractice into academia and, and really continuing to push for that because uh i was getting i I continue to get the impression that some training programs out there of course did telepractice during covid and now that we are sort of over covid (laughs) although people are still being diagnosed um that they were kind of moving away from telepractice in some places because right. there is no one there to sort of champion it or, or really push it or say, this is, we need to keep doing this. And so they're kind of falling back into what they were doing before COVID. And Agreed. so I think that's I, a mistake. Yeah, I agree. And I agree that it needs to be sustainable for the long term. For us as a field, we continue to have pockets where we need to outreach that can only be accessed, so to speak through an online, uh, you know, opportunity and an online intervention program. So as a field, this is what we're sending our students. And, you know, if I'm talking about the academic side into, we want Mm -hmm. to have them have the tools to be able to do that next. And yes, even, um, even the additional um, version of what we have had at, um, at the college that I'm working at at Mercy is that Mercy even has set up a whole room that is dedicated again to telepractice. So there is, you know, a document scanner and a laptop, not a laptop, a desktop, and you know the the ability to for the students to be able to use that room solely for telepractice as they need to. There was another room that was being used, but it was part adjunct office part telepractice yes, so, yes. <laughs> so this one is is going to be more dedicated that's good that's great you you mentioned reaching populations with telepractice and i think that brings up another topic that that i wanted to discuss with you and that is how do how do we get to reach those families that may have cultural differences more diverse families and and get them connected, so to speak, with telepractice, because that may be the only way to reach them. This is something that I'm still working on, but I am <laughs> sure. intentionally moving mm-hmm. more um, towards it. So uh, our um, our 
university has two campuses and one of them is actually in the Bronx. And the Bronx is traditionally an underserved community that does not have enough speech pathologists that go there. Um, and in fact, there's there's a whole scholarship for students so that they can serve in underserved communities, specifically in the New York City boroughs of the Bronx and Brooklyn. So we are actually talking to the Bronx campus about how we can physically also expand to our Bronx uh, communities and outreach there so that they can participate in speech services. Now that's physically a way to do it. The other part, as far as telepractice is concerned, one of the ways that um, has been, that I'm trying to get more, mm, let's say, leverage with <laughs> is to be able to reach out into those community organizations mm -hmm. and let them know that we are available so that they can partner with us to be able to have, um, get the word out to their, um, you know, their, their uh, I want to say their customers um, and be able to provide them with the information that they know what a speech pathologist can do to help them. Mm -hmm. So there are, of course, children that are mm -hmm. young, um, early intervention. Maybe they know about early intervention. Maybe they don't know about early intervention. Maybe they don't think it's something that they have access to. Um, mm -hmm. But of course, uh, there is a possibility that they can get access to us as um, as, as student or the student clinicians and, and students uh, serve them in intervention as well as in in the future in assessment but those you know from children and then there's the other side which is of course those adults that have strokes that are in their homes that are also in these communities that again can't really travel very far first of all and second of all they don't know what somebody can do to help them past their illness. Again, for cultural reasons, some of these things are not well discussed and they're not well known as immigrants sometimes, of course, um, and immigrants in lower socioeconomic communities. These are not things that they see even in their schools, because if it's an underserved school, you don't have speech pathologists that are serving. So there's no example that you're seeing. And if it's an underserved community that's a hospital, you again have very limited resources of um, personnel to deal with these issues. So again, I had a friend who called me. She lives in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Her sister um, went through a procedure and she called me up and said, I did not know speech pathologists did this you know, this mm -hmm. in the hospitals, right. they, this woman came in and she helped her sister to mm -hmm. do X, Y, and Z with her needs. And mm -hmm. she was like, she was really amazing. And this is great. And why don't more people know about this? <laughs> so this is, you know, a real, people just don't know. And if they don't know it in person, right. they're definitely not going to know how to outreach for you know, their remote services and being able to do that through telepractice. So that's, that is my, my, one of my projects actually mm -hmm. that I worked with um, trying to get the word out um, through my, through ASHA's leadership development program. Right. So that is definitely something that I think is so needed and continues to be an area of interest for me. Yeah. 
So what can the what what do you think the average SLP can do to try to help this situation? Um, any any tips or strategies to I mean, because to be honest, I struggle with it myself of getting uh, more diverse families connected to services. Um, and I'm at uh, Akron Children's Hospital. And I mean, it's and and we are considered and, and University of Akron as well, considered mm-hmm. an herb, what they call an urban university. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we still struggle even recruitment to get students into our graduate program. We have scholarships that we can give to diverse students and we can't, they, they won't come. <laughs> they, they're going elsewhere or they're not interested in yeah. speech pathology. So it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big thing from recruiting students who are diverse to getting the services to the people that really need it. Yeah, we were actually talking about this the other day when we were talking about the Bronx campus and talking about recruitment of more students of diverse backgrounds, diverse language backgrounds. Also, um, I I live in Queens, so Queens is one of the most diverse like, linguistically. Um, so we have definite needs across across the boroughs, across New York City. So I've I've thought about where we can find more outreach or more ways into as speech pathologists what we're doing let's be clear we're Mm -hmm. all busy i don't know a single speech pathologist that's like i don't have anything to do like i'm not busy this is fine let's do let's put more on my to-do list so that you know that is real everybody has a a pretty hefty caseload i think if I were um, looking for people to recruit, I might actually tap into the students and say that they need to do some outreach about why they chose the field so that they can get the word out about their choice, right? So why was it, what what attracted me to be in the program currently? Mm -hmm. So I'm actually thinking about that as an option because Mm -hmm. those of us that have been in the field a long time maybe have, you know, whatever reason we came in 20 years ago, 25 years ago, et cetera. Doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) In some cases. Yeah. Yeah, In some cases that might be definitely not something that a young person can relate to. So I'm, you know, so that's one of the ways that I think I can, in my current version of where I'm going, we actually have a DEI task force So one of the things that I want to encourage our students to do is do some of that outreach, those high school outreach programs, Mm -hmm. those middle school outreach programs, those career day programs. Excuse me. That's the one I was thinking about, those career day programs. So I think that that might be an option for us if we can if we can leverage that. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the ways, you know, those of us in the field, I don't know that we recognize oftentimes where close by we can perhaps draw people in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that every good neighborhood, and please understand I am using air quotes for those of you that are listening <laughs> to this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for every, you know, they, they can be within reach of a, le- a, a less good, and again, air quotes, neighborhood mm-hmm. that they right. can outreach to where they can kind of give opportunities in 
uh, or sorry, they can give talks to mm-hmm. those community people to, again, especially if it's telepractice, to be able to partner with them and tell them, we can come, we can talk to your people on this day as part of your particular workshop or, you know, community meeting or whatever, because there are definitely going to be some people that are interested in that. I would actually, in fact, as I was just saying that, one of the ways that um, I'm actually going to a community meeting for um, local politicians Mm -hmm. tomorrow, and those those people have those resources, right? They have Mm -hmm. those meetings, they have those newsletters that go out. So tapping into our community um, leaders at as far as politicians, might also be an opportunity for us to get the word out a little bit more and use their resources. Because like you said, a lot of them have some money to invest in this. They have some reasons that they want to improve their own reputation in their neighborhoods. So, yeah, I think that that might be another option for us. Again, I don't know that there's any easy answers right (laughs) right now. Yeah, no, no sort of magic, uh, waiver magic wand. It's all going to be fixed. Unfortunately, unfortunately. not. Yes, yeah. we need multiple, multiple ways to try to get in, get our inroads. And, and again, mm-hmm. back to multilingual people in our field. Mm-hmm. Um, the message may not need to come in English. <laughs> like that might be something that needs well. to come in another language. And that yeah. is a huge, um, missing part of what you know of our field we don't have enough multilingual bilingual clinicians that may be able to give that message so that's why we would also need to partner with those people so yeah i agree 100 percent. so while we're on this topic i have to get your um your ideas or, or your reaction to this is kind of stepping out of telepractice for just a moment and kind of get your reaction to some of the issues going around the country where the uh, DEI offices are being eliminated or, or rebranded and all this stuff in some states. Um, has any of that sort of percolated up through your 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 universe, your college there or or in the community? So uh, we oh, wow. <laughs> Such a great question. There's so much there. There's so yes, much. Yes, there, there is. There really is. And I did hear your your podcast recently where you you know you guys tapped into a little bit of this with the Indian schools. I remember you were talking yeah. about, but yeah, so I, I was listening. I was listening. I was like, this is good news. This is good information. But mm-hmm. um, but either way, this the other part is not the good news. So um okay, so if I um, again, I think we, we talk about these things as, you know, this is an opinion, but this is also an educated opinion and some information that we we know. Specifically, Mercy College, there's been no word. I'll say it that way. There's been no word either way. I suspect that there's going to be things that are going to be happening. Mercy College specifically is a, a, a Hispanic serving institute. Mm. So as a Hispanic serving institute, similar uh, for those who are not familiar, it's like an HBCU. So Mm -hmm. historically black college or university, this particular university is 
Hispanic Serving Institute, which means that they get some sort of federal funding based on their population of students that come mm. from specifically Hispanic backgrounds. Um, if, if you choose to use that word Hispanic. Sure. But, <laughs> so uh, so I, I'm hoping that we get some word from Mercy College. I have noted that in a previous university, I was told just last week that what used to be a, um, a, a DEI office, um, meaning specifically it was the um, Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, of course, mm-hmm. um, has now been um, absorbed into the Student Affairs Office. So they were downsizing mm-hmm. it in some ways or making it into another area, putting it into another right. area, excuse me. Um, so I suspect that that's probably going to happen in a few different universities where they're going to decrease their prioritization of these DEI offices and fold yeah. them back into another section of their school. But again, as we know, you always have to follow the money, right? So what does that mean that they then share the budget with them? Or does that mean that their budget is added? Like, does it continue to be as it was financially supported for resources for um, their their outreach for or the support for their students, mentoring programs, um, their uh, resources for tutoring around students that are non-traditional or um, that the obviously need to be part of this um, pro- uh, this this I'm um, sorry process. So I I see it already and hear it already that it it has always been a tough sell. And now with the, you know, overturning of the affirmative action in universities, especially the motivation m- might be minimized for universities to continue to have DEI programs that are prominent at their universities. So I do see this as being potentially a, an ongoing decline for yeah. now. Yeah. Hopefully there's something else that comes about, mm-hmm. but it, it's just scary to think about that there might be a time where we can't even talk about recruiting someone from a diverse background because we can't consider that. And I think that is a disservice. You know, we don't want to see that the 8% is already sad in our field. We don't want to see right. it go down. And I don't know. I feel like this does have the potential to do that. You are correct. I mean, as much as we are talking, uh, you know, as we just spoke earlier about how we can recruit in communities that weren't really being recruited because they didn't know about us. At what level Mm -hmm. does that stop? Like, do we get stopped, so to speak, in our tracks because we don't have, you know, that support from the university? Um, But yeah, no, that's a great point, Kim. Yeah, I don't know that that's I don't know that that's to our benefit as a field. So speech pathologists Mm -hmm. and audiologists. I don't even know what the percentage is in audiology. I can't, you know, I I need to find that out. Probably lower. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even if what you brought up when we talked about the Indian schools, too, that I think if we have learned something from that, it should be like not just assuming that the 
the majority of the population knows the best way to educate everybody. And, you know, I think we're not sending, well, there are some boarding schools still open, but as a whole, we're not sending people that are of a minority population to separate schools. You can probably argue that some of them we're not calling them, Indian we're not calling them Indians anymore. We're not calling them Indian schools. We're not calling them Indians anymore either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's but I yes. still I still think that there is that if the thing that we can still learn from it and I think that it still affects us is that fact that, you know, you can't just assume that you know the best way to teach somebody who's of a different culture than you are. So one of the things that you just reminded me of was um, a discussion that happened about um, segregation and integration and how, and I don't know if you've heard this before, but it was a few years ago that I heard this and, you know, we were all learning new things all the time. Um, so, of course, we always celebrate Brown v. Board of Education and how uh, students from black schools were bused into new, mm-hmm. you know, integrated schools and everybody was together and it was great. And I heard from somebody who went through that process, so to speak, um, that it was actually in some ways to their detriment mm-hmm. to leave the mm-hmm. schools where people cared about them and wanted mm-hmm. them there mm-hmm. and that they had black teachers mm-hmm. to go to a school that now had white teachers and they were really trying to undermine their education Right. And in that case, what you're talking about is similar in the sense that, you know, we think that we're doing the best that we, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're giving them, you know, opportunities in a new environment mm-hmm. and, you know, things like that. But the truth is, you know, in that case, it wasn't it didn't work out very well. Now, yeah. let's be clear. I um, have talked about the fact that as a professor and as an uh, an educator in higher education specifically, there are very few black professors in programs, period. So from their undergrad speech education or audiology uh, to their graduate, excuse me, audiology educations, um, there are very few professors that, that we can name that we saw in our specifically designed speech and hearing courses that were of color, mm-hmm. very few. Uh, if you have more than a handful, you had a lot. Yeah, you had a lot. If you had, like, I can remember two. You mm-hmm. know, and... I, got, I got none, zero. <laughs> so, yeah. when I was in Utah. If you have hundred people in your entire like town, so yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's um, that's legit, and that mm-hmm. is real. And so, you know, the the catchphrase is representation matters, but the realistic version of that is if they don't see themselves in the field as people of authority, people of knowledge, people of intellect, you know, et cetera, then, and and rightfully so, they want to make money. They want to be able to like, you know, participate in a career that helps them um, live their best lives in the best ways mm-hmm. possible. So again, they can do, you know, they can make money in a lot of different careers, but we want them to see us. We want them to be part of, you know, our, we want our 8% to grow to at least double digits slash more than that, uh, you know, representative right. of the communities that we come from. So, yeah. <sighs> so much to try to tackle. It's a, it's a lot to to think about and I, I, there are so many studies that show that 
we make better decisions when we are inclusive. When we're looking at a diversity of opinion and life experience and culture, whether it's in business or academia or wherever, when we have a diversity of opinion and life experience, that leads to better decisions, better yeah. outcomes. Better outcomes. Yeah. And it just it just bothers me that all these I hate to say it, but older white men feel so threatened by everything that's different, that's not them. And we end up with these kinds of issues. Yeah. There I said it. I don't care. You you did. You did. You said that. And I, I appreciate it because the truth is, you know, we have had at least thankfully in the last three years, more open and transparent um, conversations uh, in our field, at least mm -hmm. uh, around what we need to do and the truth of what was really happening. There are, it's not because people were trying to be bad, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a matter of saying that how, how you know, if we are not talking about it, do, do we even know that it's really a problem? And do we know that we mm -hmm. understand that the problem can be, as you said, like, if we solve this problem, it's to everyone's benefit. It right. really does make the whole field blossom. So. Right. That is really something that I think that people are were not recognizing. And so, as you said very well, <laughs> that mm. this is definitely something that is to, to our benefit across the board. And there's no reason for us to, to fear the the advancement of somebody else because we all we all rise. We do. Mm -hmm. And I would exactly. say that's, you know, that's also one of the problems with the, the affirmative action decision is that somebody was afraid that they weren't rising because somebody else had, was rising instead, so yeah. to speak. Right. Um, exactly. So that's, you know, not good. Yeah, I agree 100%. Well, Don, it's been wonderful catching up with you. And we did talk a little bit about telepractice. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a great conversation. And and how can someone reach out to you if they want to say hello or just comment yes. on what we've talked about? So I am on the social medias um, mm -hmm. and I'm on um, Instagram and LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, of course, is my name, Dawn Cotter Jenkins, Cotter with a C. And um, Instagram and Facebook, of course, I have business pages. So WC Speech IQ is usually the way to find me on Instagram is my handle, WC Speech IQ. And uh, my email, dcjenkins at wcspeech.com. So. Wonderful. Well, you have to come back again soon and we'll solve some more problems. Okay. <laughs> that's it we've solved it yes yes thank you don for joining us on the podcast and i appreciate the opportunity to discuss some very important issues with you and thank you listeners for tuning in to this episode of telepractice today i would appreciate if you could leave us a five-star review that helps us move up in the rankings and attract new subscribers. So anytime you can do that, it is always, always appreciated.
And with that, we'll be back again next week with another exciting episode. So until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.